Good afternoon and welcome to the 130th of the COVID calls. This is a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. My name is Scott Gabriel Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters at Drexel University in Philadelphia. Today, I discuss recent COVID-19 battles in the courts with Kathy Bergen and Lindsay Wiley. Just a reminder, you can catch COVID calls live every weekday at 5 p.m. Eastern time on YouTube. Just go to the COVID Calls YouTube channel to watch. You can also watch COVID, call, COVID Calls on Facebook Live and on Periscope. You can hear COVID Calls anytime recorded as podcasts on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, or anywhere you get podcasts. You can also keep up with COVID Calls via Twitter using the handle at US of Disaster or at COVID Calls. Please do help spread the word and send suggestions for future guests and topics, and please feel free to suggest yourself as a future guest. As of today, September 18th, there are 30,316,394 cases of COVID-19 globally. That's according to the Johns Hopkins University Coronavirus Resource Center. That's up from 29,925,969 cases yesterday. 6,710,585 of those are in the United States, up from 6,644,311 reported yesterday. There are now a total of 198,197 deaths reported in the United States from COVID-19, up from 197,120 yesterday, yet another day with more than 1,000 deaths day to day. As a way to bring some humanity to the numbers, I've been reading a life story or a story of advocacy for those impacted by the pandemic. I'd like to continue that now. The headline what it's like to be held by ice during the COVID-19 pandemic. This appeared in Huffington Post yesterday, September 17th, by Roweda Abdelaziz. A few weeks into his time in immigrant detention, 35-year-old Antony was diagnosed with the flu. He was born with sickle cell anemia and is immunocompromised. So with COVID-19 spreading throughout the U.S., he was terrified. If he contracted the coronavirus, it could kill him. I was praying a lot, said Antony, who spoke to Huffington Post through an interpreter and is being referred to by a pseudonym to avoid retaliation. I was telling God to give me the strength and the courage to deal with this situation. Antony is one of the thousands of immigrants who have been detained by Immigration and Customs Enforcement, ICE, during the coronavirus pandemic. He spoke to Huffington Post about his experience in a detention center in New Jersey, one of the facilities that are vulnerable due to the use of common spaces, a lack of room for social distancing, a lack of proper medical attention, and guards who might bring the virus in or carry it out. Although the Immigration and Customs Enforcement Agency officials say the agency is taking precautions to avoid the spread of the coronavirus, including releasing more than 1,000 people, Activists say that the facilities remain ill-prepared to protect those detained. Immigrants were given face masks only recently, but most of them are forced to reuse single-use masks without being allowed to wash them or receive new ones. Those held were not given soap or sanitizers, and some were even exposed to pesticides and other toxic substances. Despite global lockdown measures, ICE continued to detain, transfer, and deport immigrants, including thousands of children, all of which 
has contributed to the spread of the coronavirus nationally and globally. Foreign governments who accepted deportees said they brought the coronavirus back with them. Antony ultimately tested negative for COVID-19 and was released to be with his family as he awaits court proceedings. But others in the facility did test positive. At least one immigrant tested positive for COVID-19 at the same facility in March. All told, more than 5,000 individuals have contracted the virus while in ICE custody, including more than 800 ICE detainees just in the last week. In Arizona, more than 200 new cases were reported at one of ICE's facilities. ICE facilities in Texas, Louisiana, Florida, and Virginia have all reported deaths as a result of COVID-19. Last month, a 50-year-old Honduran man held at a Texas immigration facility died after testing positive for COVID-19. He was the 19th detainee to die while in ICE custody during the 2020 fiscal year. This year likely will mark the highest number of immigrant deaths while in ICE custody. In 2006, 19 immigrants also died while in custody, which is the highest number of deaths today. On a cold January morning, Antony, who was born in the Caribbean, kissed his wife and baby goodbye as he left for work on the East Coast. It was 5 a.m. and he hadn't slept much the night before. His son, less than a year old, was sick and both parents had been up all night taking care of him. But Antony had to leave for work to provide for his family. He was in his car when an unmarked van blocked his way. The men from the van identified themselves as police and told him he was under arrest. They took him to an immigration facility in New Jersey where he stayed with about 60 other detainees. When you're far away from your family, far away from someone you love, and someone who loves you, and they take that away, they tear it away from you just like that. It destroys you. It destroys your heart, Antony told Huffington Post through an interpreter. By February, lawyers at the Legal Aid Society, a nonprofit based in New York City, took on Antony's case advocating for his release. ICE has endangered the lives of our clients and others in their jails by making the indefensible choice to detain them during this pandemic, said Catherine Kim, supervising attorney in the Immigration Law Unit at the Legal Aid Society. They have a clear track record of failing to provide adequate and appropriate medical care to people in detention, and we continue to be concerned for the health and well-being of our clients. Advocates say ICE's lack of transparency has left them unable to assess the true cost of outbreaks and if the death toll and transmission rate could be higher. Rebecca Intralgo, the spokesperson for Freedom for Immigrants, an advocacy nonprofit that monitors human rights abuses faced by immigrants detained by ICE, told Huffington Post that its hotline continues to receive calls from those inside the facility for the latest news. They have to rely on friends, families, or advocates to provide updated information from public health officials or the government. What we see is a consistent pattern of obfuscation. ICE is not transparent about how many people have been tested. They are not transparent about how many people actually have contracted. They give numbers and you're not quite sure if they're people who are facility staff or if they're people who have been detained, Bell said. As for Antony, he's grateful to be home with his wife and children. He doesn't know what the future holds for him as an undocumented person because his case is ongoing, but for now he plans to keep working and providing for his family. Freedom is priceless. When they take away that freedom, you get destroyed, he said. I'm here again with my family, free and trying to do everything possible to push ahead. Okay, let's turn to our discussion for today, and I'm really excited to introduce my guests. Kathy Bergen is back for her se second visit to COVID Calls. Kathy is a recognized expert in disaster law, 
She presently teaches at Cornell University Law School. Her research extends to humanitarian aid programs and the catastrophic impact of climate change. She's been crucial in promoting disaster law as an academic discipline. She's also a successful advocate. Her team in Haiti established binding precedent in a proceeding before the Inter-American Commission on Human Rights that reinforced post-disaster human rights obligations. Her work on mass evacuation shelters after Hurricane Katrina is used across the humanitarian sector as a blueprint for protecting displaced survivors. And her knowledge of constitutional standards helped coalition partners in Puerto Rico secure changes in the federal government's response to Hurricane Maria. She is on the steering committee for Project Blueprint, a policy advocacy organization aimed at promoting a progressive U.S. foreign policy. My second guest is Lindsay Wiley. She is a professor of law and director of the Health Law and Policy Program at American University, Washington College of Law. She is the author of Public Health Law, Power, Duty, Restraint, and Public Health Law and Ethics, a reader. Her recent work, uh, the second publication, is also co-authored with Lawrence Augustin. Her recent work on the coronavirus pandemic has been published in the Washington Post, Democracy, a journal, the American Constitution Society's Expert Forum, and the Harvard Law Review Forum. Professor Wiley is a board member and former president of the American Society of Law, Medicine, and Ethics, and a former member of the National Conference of Lawyers and Scientists. She received her JD from Harvard and MPH from Johns Hopkins University. Kathy Bergen and Lindsay Wiley, welcome to COVID Calls. Thanks, Scott. Glad to be here again. Very happy to be joining you. I'm a big fan of the work that you're doing. Thanks for that. Uh, thanks both of you for Friday afternoon time uh, and also for responding to this request on short notice, but the headlines have kind of demanded uh, some experts in this space. So I'm really glad to have you here today. And I'd like to just start the way I usually do just to find out where you're calling from. And if you don't mind telling us how the pandemic situation is looking there today. So Lindsay, could I start with you? So I'm in Montgomery County, Maryland, uh, several miles down the road from my university, American University in Washington, DC. Uh, our university is fully online. We were uh, one of a few to make the decision um, about midsummer that we would not hold classes on site. Um, coronavirus locally, the transmission has been sort of steady and, and uh, steady at an untenable level, but you know, uh, uh, we're a yellow county in Montgomery County. It could be worse, but it could certainly be better. Uh, we're, we're all sort of holding our breath um, to see what the effect is of universities who have reopened. Um, public schools K through 12 are closed uh, and fully online in my county through January, through the end of January. But University of Maryland brought students back on site uh, this past week. And with fall coming, we're all waiting to see what the impact of that might be uh, on the uh, mitigation that we've been able to maintain uh, over the last few months. Is it a mixed picture in terms of the universities deciding there whether to come back or not, or, or have they all followed basically the same pattern? No, it's it's very mixed. It's very mixed mm -hmm. at the university level. It's very mixed at the county level here in the greater metropolitan DC area. Um, in general, counties are uh, taking a slow and steady approach to reopening, but they are gradually moving towards uh, opening more and more businesses, easing restrictions. Um, there's also a, a, a percolating conflict between Governor Hogan in Maryland and 
the county government here in Montgomery County, certainly not anything as, um, as heated as in some parts of the country, but, um, but particularly with respect to schools, the governor announced, you know, a matter of a couple of days before schools were set to open online, announced that uh, he was urging schools to, to reopen face-to-face mm-hmm. um, uh, with a really strong response from county executives and really ugly, you know, brutal uh, threats and, and, and criticism of our county health officer as well, which is something we've been seeing across the country. You're in one of the very few states left, uh, certainly in the in the mid-Atlantic and Northeast, that has divided government between the county and the municipal and the state level, right? So that it's something we might turn to today to talk about these, these kind of struggles that happen between those levels of government. How is he viewed? I mean, is this is the pandemic had any effect on the way that his popularity has has been in the state? Yeah, he's a, a remarkably popular governor for a Republican governor in a blue state. Um, he's also had a prominent role on the national stage uh, in his role with the National Governors Association. Um, I think his conflict with the county executive and county health officers and county school districts may do some damage uh, to that reputation here in the greater D.C. area. But it's it's maybe too soon to tell. I think we'll know. A lot more, you know, a lot of us are waiting to see what happens this fall uh, as, as school districts in other parts of the state reopen. Kathy, uh, same question to you and just welcome you back and uh, remind folks if you want to see my first discussion with Kathy, you can check that out. It was April 22nd. And as we were just chatting before we started today, on that day, um, there were 46,079 deaths in the United States to give you a sense of this pandemic. So. Kathy, would you mind reminding us where you're calling from and how's it looking there? Sure, yeah. So I'm calling from Ithaca, New York, which is in Tompkins County, New York. We're about an hour south of Syracuse. Um, we, are, as a county, are doing remarkably well in terms of numbers. We never really, um, I, I think, you know, we never really got above maybe a couple dozen positive coronavirus cases. But we're in a unique situation because we have two um, major colleges and universities here. We have Ithaca College and we have Cornell University. And so during the summer, typically when those schools are out of session, we might have as low as, you know, 15 or 20,000 people in our community. And then the college students come back and it more than doubles. And so one of the things that we were concerned about over the summer was what effect the influx of students would have on our coronavirus rate. We have um, students from all over the country and all over the world and faculty members from all over the country and all over the world, which which makes us a really fantastic and vibrant community. But under the circumstances, we were concerned about how we would control the spread of coronavirus. Um, Ithaca College decided pretty early on to go fully online. Um, They didn't want their students back on campus. Cornell took a little bit of a different approach. Uh, They offered professors the option of holding classes in person or online. By and large, most of us are offering our classes online. There are a few exceptions to that. Mostly, I would say, in the undergraduate and graduate schools where you have things like, um, you know, live wet labs for scientists who need to be on campus. But as far as the law school goes, um, I surveyed my students on this. Mostly all of their classes are online. Um, nonetheless, Cornell took a pretty um, a pretty well thought out approach to um, how they were going to monitor this situation. And um, at first, there was a lot of community uh, push on the folks at Cornell not to have the students come back at all 
or if they came back um, to make sure all the classes were online. But the research they did and the experts they spoke with um, predicted that most students were going to come back anyway, regardless of where the class, regardless of how the classes were delivered. And that's because many of them had long-term leases. And so at Cornell, because of that, because we're going to have all these students here anyway, they devised a process whereby all the students and staff and faculty who are on campus um, need to be tested periodically, even if they are asymptomatic. Um, that process has upheld remarkably well. We did have a bit of a spike in um, positive test results. I think right now we have a couple dozen. I think it, it's been fluctuating around sort of 30 or 40 positive cases, um, which kind of scared a lot of folks initially because we were down to zero within the last month or two and hovering around one or two. So we went up pretty fast, but most of these um, individuals were asymptomatic. And so, you know, I think now we're understanding that we're catching them in time. Um, they're being isolated, they're being cared for. And, um, you know, because we've identified them, they're not spreading it to the greater community. Time will tell whether or not that works in the long run, but I know that other schools have adopted that same approach um, as Cornell. There, there have been reports of concerns about students who aren't um, quite satisfied with the care and attention they've been given. Um, once they have been tested, uh, I don't want to gloss gloss over that and say, you know, everything is perfect and everybody's happy. But I think as far as identifying cases that could have contributed to a much greater spread, that we're catching those cases early on and keeping the whole community safe. So we've been pretty happy with that. The politics of Western New York are different from the politics downstate and in the city and in Albany. Has, has that been playing out? I know Ithaca has got its own politics unique to that city as well, but in the county surrounding and in that part of New York, what are you seeing in terms of response to Governor Cuomo? Yeah, so Ithaca is its own little microcosm. We're very progressive, we're very left. All of our local leaders are um, Democrats, working party Democrats, et cetera. Um, and, and our kind of ethos to all of this has has by and large, with some detractors, of course, but by and large been very community oriented and lots of folks wearing ma masks and trying to comply with social distancing, a little bit of difficulty at the colleges with that. But um, but I think by and large, we've been, we've appreciated um, the directives that have come down from Governor Cuomo. If you drive 10 miles out of town, it's a completely different story. It's, it's like, it's living in two very different cultures. Um, also, we're in a unique situation because our federal um, representative, um, because of the way district boundaries are drawn, um, he happens to be very right. He's not a fan of Governor Cuomo. Um, he's not a fan of um, you know strict coronavirus restrictions. So there is some friction mm -hmm. there. Um, he's much more popular in outlying communities than he is in Ithaca. Um, so yeah, so we are in a unique situation that you know even within the you know the boundary that you define as upstate New York, Ithaca is its own little microcosm. I think that's really, and that's a good background as we get into our conversation today. You know, these maps, um, I was talking with Alex Wellerstein earlier this week about data visualization and coronavirus, and we were talking about how population is represented in another way that um, the coronavirus is sometimes um, flattened is ideologically. And you look at a map, you say, well, a state is red or a state is blue. 
uh, well, I'm in New Jersey. If you're, there's some counties in New Jersey that are not going to be that different politically from Kentucky or West Virginia. And I know that's true in New York and in Maryland as well. So that's the basis of some of the tensions I think we're going to talk about today. And Lindsay, I'd like to start with you. Um, you know, earlier this week, there was this Pennsylvania case that came out that, um, a lot of attention, and there was a story about it in the Washington Post in which you're quoted, actually. I'm just going to quote one little bit of it and get you to talk about it with us. The state's limits, it said, on gatherings and closure of non-essential businesses violated the First Amendment and the due process and equal protection clauses of the 14th Amendment, according to a 66-page opinion by U.S. District Judge William Stickman IV, the Trump appointee. The governor's office confirmed it will appeal the decision. So that's Governor Wolf in Pennsylvania. What is happening with this case? Can you take us behind the headlines a little bit? Yeah, I think the, the key takeaway for your audience is that this is a clear outlier uh, as a decision. And it's, it's, you know, it's getting a lot of attention for that reason. There are you know, hundreds of, of cases that have been filed really from the earliest days of restrictions being imposed uh, even before the first stay-at-home orders were filed, when uh, when the first gathering limits were put into to effect, um, at that time I, I, I wrote an op-ed in the Washington Post that uh, uh, the editorial team headlined: "The coronavirus lawsuits are coming." Well, the coronavirus lawsuits came very rapidly, uh, and this is just one of the most recent in a long series. In this case, um, what makes it an outlier is that the court um, found uh, a, a way to really go out of its way. The judge really went out of his way to declare unconstitutional um, a series of orders from the Pennsylvania governor that were actually are actually not in effect uh, currently. And so uh, the case is up on appeal uh, before the Third Circuit. Um, it's, I think it's very likely to be overturned on appeal. There would be, there are actually, there's a, a lot for the appellate judges to work with in terms of essentially, if nothing else, saying that this judge should not have decided these questions at this time because the controversy isn't live because these orders are not currently in effect that, 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 that he's declared unconstitutional. So just to follow up on that a little bit, it, it's because the case took so long to make its way through the court that they're no longer those restrictions aren't in effect or the the plaintiffs in the case, which I believe are state legislators, if I've got this right, they are worried about a future lockdown. I mean, what's the timeline on this? So a lot of these cases have actually proceeded very rapidly through the court. Hmm. We tend to think of, um, of court cases as taking months or years, but uh, but when the courts want to uh, decide the issue quickly and when the litigants uh, are able to convince them to move fast, um, they have the ability to do so. They tend to be decided, though, on uh, on different standards, on procedural grounds. So most of the decisions that we've seen have been uh, kind of temporary orders from the court. Uh, but those temporary orders tend to send a very strong signal about how the court would decide the case if it ultimately proceeds to its conclusion. And so in many cases, uh, the litigants drop the case after the temporary order has either been, either been issued or not. Uh, in this case, uh, the litigants proceeded uh, beyond that preliminary stage. Uh, this is one of the few cases where that's happened. So that's part of the reason it's taken so long. 
Uh, the plaintiffs in the case, uh, the, the kind of primary plaintiffs were actually county governments um, mm -hmm. who disagreed with the uh, governor's order, uh, as well as it, it, you know something we've seen in lots of uh, lots of states uh, though is uh, individual state legislators suing in their individual capacity, um, and then in a couple of cases, including Wisconsin, the uh, entire state legislature has sued uh, uh, the governor in these cases. So, so the posture can be a little different in each case depending on who the litigants are and how it how it's proceeded through the courts. Uh, we'll probably talk a little bit more about this issue about these plaintiffs and and who has the right to bring what sort of sort of case. But just to to go a little bit further with this, what are some of the underlying constitutional concerns that come to light in this case? So this specific case is um, only raising individual rights challenges, and that's something that actually also sets it apart from from the other cases that where, where plaintiffs have met with some success. So in this case, uh, uh, as you said, and as the Washington Post reported, the uh, plaintiffs were alleging that the governor's uh, gathering limits, stay-at-home orders, and closure of all non-life-sustaining businesses, which is how Pennsylvania's governor designated non-essential businesses, that those orders violated First Amendment rights to assembly, uh, uh, and also violated, uh, also violated 14th Amendment rights um, to due process. There, you know, weirdly, we're actually talking about substantive rights rather than just process, uh, but substantive rights to liberty, uh, in particular, liberty to earn one's living uh, mm. as one chooses, which is the most controversial holding in the case because that's something that doesn't have widespread support uh, in Supreme Court, modern Supreme Court precedent. Um, and then they've also alleged a violation of the Equal Protection Clause. We tend to think of equal protection in terms of protected classes, suspect classifications based on things like race uh, or religion. But the Equal Protection Clause also imposes some pretty minimal constraints on all government action that draws any kind of classification. So one of the very old cases uh, uh, that, that we learn in law school is you know, between optometrists and ophthalmologists, for example, you know, any kind of classification. Uh, has to has to at least uh, satisfy the standard of not being arbitrary. Mm. Um, and in this case, the court said that the classification between among different types of businesses as life sustaining or not was uh, purely arbitrary, that there was I no see. rational basis uh, for that classification. That's also a real outlier uh, uh, holding in this particular opinion that might be vulnerable to being overturned on appeal. It's interesting though, because it does show the amount of improvisation that health departments and states have had to make when they do decide, well, okay, a barbershop versus a gym versus a different, you know, delicatessen. Or, I mean, some of them seem very clear and obvious, others maybe less so, particularly as our understanding of the coronavirus has changed. Yeah, and these are really vulnerable to a political accusation too, that, that the governor, uh, that governors across the country are picking winners and losers is kind of the, the language that's used to criticize these uh, these orders uh, designating different businesses as either essential or not, or as high risk uh, or low risk or medium risk. Um, and that really gets at the other big uh, constitutional challenge that's not raised in the Pennsylvania case, but has been raised in many others, including many that are currently pending before the courts. And that's a question about what which branch of government has authority to issue these kinds of decisions. It really goes to the heart of a, a question about exactly the kind of improvisation that you're referring to. The idea that 
those kinds of choices are really policy choices that should mm -hmm. be made by the legislature, by the city council, by the state legislature, and not by the executive branch. That's been the far thornier issue uh, in this litigation. Uh, not something that was raised in the Pennsylvania case that came down this week, but something that's been raised in lots of others. One of the Kathy to to come to you. One of the things that's pointed out in this in this piece um, is that the judge was a Trump is a Trump appointee, um, and does that really matter? I mean, I, I you know how do we what do we what do we make of that claim and the success that Trump has had um, already? If we do a little instant history, the I would say the one thing he's accomplished that will have uh, lasting impact uh in the united states and the united states government is his success with judges so are we seeing the front edge of something here lindsay described this as an outlier case will it be less of an outlier when we face coronavirus in 2024 or whenever in the future we face uh, it again it may be i think it depends on who's still on the bench in 2024 and how many more judges trump gets to um appoint he like you said he has had a remarkable success i don't know what the number is but there are you know many many judges who are on the bench now that would not have been on the bench under um other democratic um presidential administrations and there's an ebb and flow to this every president wants judges on the bench and of course the senate plays a role as well but obviously they want judges on the bench who hew closely to their um some would say judicial philosophy others would say political philosophy but um it's not unusual to have you know a president who pushes like-minded folks to the bench um so but we do worry about how much the philosophy of these individuals um, tends towards the margins. Um, another issue with Trump's judges is that they are very young. Um, this particular judge, I believe, is in his early 40s, which is young for a federal judge. There, Trump has appointed judges who were younger. Uh, federal judges are largely immune from attempts to remove them from the bench. It's very rare to make mm. to have that happen. Many of them stay on um, into senior status, if you will. Uh, when they're when uh, you know other professions folks would have um, retired um so these judges are going to have a lasting impact um you know this particular judge was deemed qualified by um many of the vetting organizations that looked at him he did have judicial experience uh, practical experience in a law firm um, he had a, you know, a, a legal career, so he's not an outlier in that regard, the way other nominees have been. Um, but there, there are some really strong ideological tilts in his past, whether or not um, they begin to express themselves in his decisions, we'll have to see. But having said all that, for me, um, you know, I, re I agree with Lindsay, this decision is an outlier when you compare it to the other challenges that are happening now. It, the reaction to this decision is also remarkable. And I'm sure you'll have things to say about this too, Scott, as a historian, but, you know, Trump's response to this decision um, was 
just graceful, frankly. Um, it, it's one thing to say, you know, I agree with the judge. I'm, a, I'm glad that somebody who shares my politics or my values issued in a way that issued a decision that I agree with. That's perfectly fine. Um, but he tweeted some pretty abhorrent things. Um, he insulted the governor. He insulted the judge, uh, the governor's wife as being stupid. Just like decorum that is, you know, beneath the president that we've seen time and time again since 2016. Um, in addition to that, some of the things that, that struck me, he tweeted someone who said, the federal judiciary is coming to save us. Now, if you know anything about the GOP's relationship with the federal judiciary, a statement like that just should knock your socks off. Because for decades, the GOP has railed against judges, particularly federal judges, who issue rulings striking down state legislation. Their whole philosophy is built on the idea that judges are unelected, they are runaway anti-majoritarian institutions, and we should place our confidence and most of our political power in the elected branches because those elected branches, legislators at the state and federal level, are gonna pass laws that reflect the will of the people. That's fine, it's a judicial philosophy, but if you go back several decades, you see particularly Brown versus Board of Education was sort of a turning point, right? This is the United States Supreme Court decision in 1954 that struck down segregated schools. Uh, the GOP at the time went, there were lawmakers at the time that went bananas over that decision. And there were calls to impeach federal uh, Supreme Court judges. There were calls to impeach federal judges at the circuit court and district court level who mm. enforced um, desegregation rulings. Some of those judges were ran were run out of town. They've been doxxed in you know the parlance of, of the modern day. Um, their children's identities were exposed. So it was a really sort of vitriolic response. Uh, following the decision in Brown, the GOP really committed to putting judges on the bench who would not be so interested in striking down state laws, right? They called for judges who embraced judicial restraint, who were not activist judges. And that's how we ended up with Supreme Court justices like Justice Rehnquist, Justice Thomas, um, Justice Scalia. Now, the irony is that if you look at the record of those justices, especially Scalia and Thomas, they were actually more prone to strike down legislation enacted based on the will of the people than other judges. So this idea that like judicial restraint is, you know, part and parlance of a conservative Republican philosophy doesn't play out. Those justices have voted to strike down statutes that sought to limit um, the purchase and ownership and possession of firearms, for example. They voted to strike down statutes that provided remedies for um, domestic violence victims. So so it so these are not restrained justices in any regard, coupled with the idea that the Republicans have been pushing for judicial restraint um, for many decades, and then now seeing a Republican president and others, um, you know, lauding this particular judge who struck down, you know, a statute enacted with the will of the majority, it just kind of makes your head spin trying to figure it out. Yeah, the the reaction that you're talking about from Trump, and thank you for that that timeline and then sort of giving us that context. Um, I think I counted 19 um, tweets or retweets. 
yeah, I sometimes count those things. Um, I think I might be off one or two. The one that was really incredible, I thought, was he retweeted a video that was on TikTok that showed seniors in a some sort of a care facility. You both have, I may have seen this one. And there uh, was some music playing and they symbolically. So this court decision meant that they could take their masks off, which is not really what that case was about. So the case, so it was this interesting, you know, the case is being held up as one of this, like a talisman of like, finally, someone has endorsed Trump and therefore people can be free again. And again, it, it speaks to, I guess, the need to take these highly complicated um, judicial proceedings and boil them down to, in the, to the base alloy of politics with the, with the election coming up. Um, I want to, let me just, um, we were talking before about about governors and legislatures and you know disasters often reveal in my experience at least powers that governors have people maybe pay attention to governors a lot of times governors are overlooked in the national political discussion but in disasters we find out how much power they truly have and it certainly goes back to the cold war and before um kathy let me ask you about this because i know you've been um, keeping track of this this case you know, in in the spring in which Governor Cuomo expanded his emergency powers. And that seems, uh, you know, I wonder if that sets the stage for some potential conflicts down the line. Can you speak about that a little bit? Yeah, sure. This is actually, um, you know, it, it's kind of a fun scenario to talk about because it really um, shows you how um, the courts interact with the executive branch and the legislature and how much interplay there is between those three entities. So um, in 2019, New York State was experiencing a series of measles outbreaks and measles were popping up in different counties. And in Rockland County, the executive officer with power to do so issued um, a prohibition on, on assembling in public places. And anybody who had not been vaccinated was prohibited from being in a public park, taking public transportation, going to a restaurant, um, if they weren't vaccinated for uh, the measles. This was a problem to uh, the plaintiffs in the case that I'll tell you about, um, who weren't vaccinated and claimed a religious exemption. And at the time, it was particularly important because New York schools allowed um, children who were not vaccinated to come to school if the reason they weren't vaccinated was for religious purposes. It's no longer the case um, in New York. They changed that. So, um, so this, uh, the dad brought this case on behalf of his children uh, saying this was an interference with my individual liberty interest, particularly my right to practice freedom of religion. So the court, ducked the religious claim. And courts like to do this. They like to avoid controversial rulings if they can. If there's another basis for deciding the case, they'll go for that. So they didn't decide the case um, based on his First Amendment religious claim. What they said was the county executive doesn't have authority to issue this order because we're not dealing with a disaster as that term is defined under the applicable statute because the disaster included epidemics, okay? And one would say, well, if there are measles outbreaks popping up all around your state, that's an epidemic. 
But the court looked to see if that term was defined in the statute, it was not. And they cited a couple of different dictionary definitions and what the common understanding of the word epidemic was. And they said, based on the spread at that time when the order was issued, we didn't have an epidemic on hand. There were, I think, 164, 165 documented cases. Mm. It was less than 1% of the population in that county. And the court said, mm, we just don't have the trigger. We don't have an epidemic, so we don't have a disaster. Right. The county executive doesn't have authority to issue this ruling. Okay, fine. Fast forward a year later, and we're on the eve of coronavirus. And in February, March, we're getting all this information about the virus that has broken out in China. Uh, it's making its way westward. Uh, big outbreaks in Iran, big outbreaks in Italy, huge scary headlines. Uh, President Trump had already issued travel restrictions on travel from China and Iran. The CDC was already issuing guidelines. Um, Secretary Azar had already declared a public health emergency right. domestically in, in January. And so Governor Cuomo is now looking at things happening around him and saying, I'm going to need to act proactively in order to keep this from, you know, breaking down my state. Um, the problem was we didn't have any cases in New York at that point. And so if you look back at the decision from the Rockland County case, Cuomo is looking at a definition of disaster that doesn't allow him much leeway to act when we don't have any cases. So um, obviously there are backroom discussions between the governor and state lawmakers. And a bill was introduced to change the definition of a disaster under the applicable statute. And in addition to situations involving epidemics, we now allow the governor to declare a disaster when there's a disease outbreak. So, you know, these are terms of art. And if we have conversations, we might not think there's a big difference between those two words. But legally speaking, a disease outbreak is going to be broader than an, than an epidemic. That was the reason why they changed the statute. The other language they changed was um, the statute allowed the governor to declare a disaster uh, in the face of an imminent threat. Well, Cuomo wasn't really sure how imminent the threat was because we didn't have any cases yet. Was it going to come tomorrow, next week, next month? We don't know. So they changed the language to allow the governor to act uh, in the face of an impending threat, right? So you're both broadening the governor's authority to declare a disaster under certain circumstances, identifying more triggers, and you're also expanding the scope, right? And the third thing that that statute did was allow the governor not only to suspend existing laws, but to issue directives. And this was huge because the authority to suspend existing laws in order to deal with an epidemic, a disease outbreak, whatever it is, might be things like, um, we're not gonna restrict doctors from uh, performing procedures in certain areas of a hospital, right? If the hospitals are overwhelmed, you might have to use the hallway, you might have to move the basement, you might have to use the cafeteria. Those kinds of things are strictly regulated on an everyday basis, but we can suspend those restrictions, right, in the face of a disaster. Well, it was unclear whether or not Governor Cuomo could issue things like social distancing orders, um, limit the number of people who could enter a business, 
close the business down and close the schools. It was unclear whether or not he could do that under existing authority. But now the statute's been amended to allow him to declare new orders. And if you go back and you look at how he drafts his orders, he'll say up front, here's the set of regulations mm -hmm. I'm spending, here are the new directives I'm enacting. And so without that change of authority, uh, it's unclear that he would have been able to act so proactively. Lindy, would you expect to see state legislatures in other states taking these kinds of actions in concert with governor's offices to avoid uh, some legal disputes in anticipation of ongoing pandemic in the next year? Can they react that quickly? So it's actually uh, been very rare uh, to see legislatures stepping in and through full the full legislative process. There have been a few instances of legislatures uh, approving extensions of governors' declarations of emergency, but unlike New York, in most states, uh, governors have had to proceed with that uh, uncertain authority to issue social distancing orders. So while in New York, the legislature clarified uh, and specifically authorized Governor Cuomo uh, to respond in this way, in most states, uh, legis uh, uh, governors and mayors are relying on older, uh, broader, less clearly defined authority to, for example, respond to a, a disaster or uh, control the spread of communicable disease. And that's really in contrast to the kinds of individually targeted public health measures uh, that most of our kind of uh, post 9-11 preparedness efforts were focused on. So post September 11th, there was a huge influx of attention and resources to modernize public health emergency statutes at the state and local level. Uh, that was really something that I was working on at the very beginning of my career. It, uh, it really brought about an entire renaissance in the public health law field, um, this, this influx of attention and resources. But those efforts were focused on modernization. So they were very focused on kind of the responses that depend on testing to identify who is infected and who is not. Uh, the federal abdication of responsibility to support testing and support access and ensure that people could find out, could be equipped with the knowledge about whether they're infected or not, um, has left state and local governments fighting this pandemic like it's 1918 with you know saloon closures and cloth face masks and kind of this you're on your own approach to the social safety net. And so that um, modernization effort defines some really specific statutory guidance for the executive branch about when individually targeted orders, like isolation orders for individuals or closures of specific businesses where there's a, a, a noted outbreak, a documented outbreak. Uh, instead, uh, the, you know, those efforts didn't really pay attention to social distancing or to mask mandates. So a lot of the uh, challenges that we're seeing in the courts are directly as a result of that uncertain authority that the New York legislature addressed, but most states haven't. Um, I'm now actively involved in advising and, and consulting with uh, legislators at the local and state level who are beginning to consider what reform might look like going forward. What's notable is that there is uh, a, a groundswell of interest in constraining executive authority rather than in specifically authorizing. And you know what I've really tried to do with my recent work is recommend a middle ground approach. So if some portion of the legislature is interested in effectively stripping the governor of powers, as has happened in Pennsylvania, for example, uh, with some legislatures attempting to do exactly that, 
uh, uh, I'm trying to offer an option to specifically authorize but impose some statutory guardrails, specifically some reporting requirements um, where the executive is required to really document the best available scientific understanding on which the order is based. Um, those orders can be overturned by the legislature at any time, but for the most part, the legislature has kind of resorted to the courts in many states, uh, which is what we saw in Wisconsin, where the legislature itself sued the state health secretary and ultimately the state Supreme Court lifted the statewide orders there back in May. The kind of modernizations that you're talking about after September 11, were those in anticipation of bioterrorism? Those are influenced by the anthrax attacks? They're worried about... Is that the context for that or? Yeah, certainly a concern about bioterrorism, but also around the same time, a growing concern about pandemic influenza. Um, and so the two efforts combined. So you'll recall that uh, post September 11th, uh, fairly shortly after there was there were anthrax attacks. And so the kind of preparedness, the terrorism preparedness effort very rapidly encompassed bioterror preparedness as well. Um, but the uh, modernization efforts sort of neglected some of these older measures that we're now deploying that are really modeled on uh, responses to the 1918 flu pandemic and also were used to a lesser extent in response to polio outbreaks in, uh, in the mid-century period, which tended to, to order uh, things like swimming pool closures, but also other closures intended to prevent children from congregating because they were at, at high risk. One big difference, though, is that in 1918 and in the mid-century, most of those orders were actually issued by the legislature at the local level. So city councils issued most of the requirements, uh, uh, banning gatherings, closing businesses, uh, issuing mask orders. That's in contrast to what we're seeing now, where the legislative branch uh, has you know, largely been content to sit back and, and uh, critique and throw rocks at the executive branch response, um, rather than stepping in and taking responsibility itself. Just a reminder that you're listening to COVID Calls and we're talking about the pandemic and the courts with Kathy Bergen and Lindsay Wiley today. I wanted to, if we could, just get to one more case that's been in the news and people have been trying to keep track of this um, might know this one. It's, of course, in Corona time, it seems like it's 10 years ago, but in May, the Wisconsin Supreme Court struck down Governor Tony Evers' decision to extend stay-at-home orders in Wisconsin. So this is, instead of the a federal court decision. Here we have a state, um, state judicial, the highest court in the state of Wisconsin, going to war against a governor. Can you, Lindsay? Let me ask you again if you give us context for this, and then Kathy, let me bring you in to see what kind of lessons you've taken away from that case. Lindsay, can I start with you? Yeah. So this is actually quite different from the Pennsylvania case, but the two cases together now kind of make up the uh, the the worst offenders in the minds of coronavirus restriction proponents for lifting uh, orders or or declaring them unconstitutional. 
In the Wisconsin case, the focus was not on individual rights. The court, the state Supreme Court did not grant review on those questions about whether the orders violated individual rights or liberties. Instead, the questions were really about a kind of power struggle between the legislative branch and the, the governor, uh, and specifically in this case, the state health secretary, who uh, under older statutes was empowered to issue orders uh, uh, to control the spread of communicable disease. The state Supreme Court, uh, uh, one of the justices famously, the, the oral arguments were broadcast and many of us watched them, which is a little bit unusual, but there wasn't a whole lot else to do back in May, maybe. Um, but the, the Supreme Court, the state Supreme Court Justice uh, Patience Ragensack famously in, in the oral argument uh, uh, questioned whether outbreaks among meatpacking plant workers were good enough reason to issue public health orders and, and referred to you know the, the meatpacking workers as not among the regular people of the state of Wisconsin. So you may remember that comment uh, from this case. Ultimately, uh, uh, after that oral argument, it became pretty clear that the, the Supreme Court was headed toward lifting uh, the orders. Um, it resulted in uh, a, a, quite a lot of chaos because the Supreme Court's decision uh, essentially found that uh, that the executive branch needed very specific authorization and needed to follow traditional rulemaking procedures that are more burdensome, take more time, uh, and allow for more public notice and comment and more control uh, through an expedited process by the legislature. Um, that's resulted in uh, uh, a lot of gaps in the state because local governments, it's not, it, it hasn't been clear that they have the authority to fill uh, the gaps when the statewide order was lifted. So there's actually now quite a lot of legislative activity happening in uh, city councils and county governments across the state to try to pass ordinances to define the authority of local health officers to fill the gaps that the Supreme Court has now left at the state level. So complicated. I'm getting like a federalism education every single day. And this last hour has been intensive and excellent in that regard. But Kathy, can you, what do you make of the Wisconsin decision? And again, what we were talking about before, some of the kind of the core constitutional concerns it raises for you? Yeah. So I'm interested in this idea that a court can issue a ruling that creates chaos in um, the state where it holds jurisdiction, because courts need to be very careful of that because they don't really have an enforcement mechanism, right? They're not, you know, there may be someone they could call up to uh, enforce an order, but it's really up to the executive branch about whether or not that will in fact happen. So one of the sort of soft restraints that, that controls judges from issuing decisions that sort of stray too far away from the will of the majority is that they have to get buy-in from the people they're dealing with. Um, in this case, obviously, um, you know, that, that didn't restrain them and it resulted in a lot of um, uncertainty. And so one of the things that, you know, I think about is how much deference in an emergency situation do we want to give to different branches of government and what is the role of putting um, a lot of unilateral authority in the hands of one actor, the governor or the chief executive of a county, for example, versus putting the decision-making authority in a deliberative body like a legislator where you have to get a majority of people to, to go along with the proposition, right? The reason why we allow governors to declare disasters, county executives or the president in a federal situation is because sometimes we need to move quickly. 
Um, it, it's the same theory of governance that controls foreign policy decisions, right? We're going to let the president have some leeway and act unilaterally. And then after the fact, the deliver, deliberative bodies can come back and check that decision. Under most statutes, um, the legislature can issue a joint resolution and override a governor's order that responds to a disaster, for example. The case I described in New York, the amendment to the, um, the executive law controlling disasters, uh, the expanded authority that was granted to the governor expires in 2021 automatically. Now that may be renewed. The legislator may put another bill up to um, pass it, extend it temporarily or extend it permanently. But there is going to be some time between the day it was passed back in March and the day it expires for us to see kind of how it works and whether or not there was um, sort of extraordinary circumstances, uh, you know, extraordinary orders that the governor issued, whether we want to control that or not. So from my perspective, you know, it's always a problem when judges issue orders that leave the decision making, uh, the popularly elected decision makers without much guidance. Just to remind folks, you're listening to COVID calls and talking to Kathy Bergen and Lindsay Wiley. And, um, you know, this um, just the cases we've just been talking about, I suppose a person could say, why don't I just say, um, you know, I may disagree with some of the interpretations of the law here. And some of these things seem patently um, ridiculous. Uh, the Pennsylvania case, for example, but it's happening. It's it's democracy in action. It's unfolding in public. There's plenty of reporting, as Lindsay, you said, you know, the 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 testimony in Wisconsin was televised. You know, there seems to be many moments here for public input into this, as opposed to other sort of legal challenges that are in the works right now or or should be, I guess, probably are. Uh, like what I, the article I read at the top of the of the discussion today about what's happening with immigration and customs enforcement. And Kathy, let me start with you on this. I mean, this that's just one example of a case where I think your average person who's trying to keep up with the coronavirus will read a story like that and say, this is distressing, but I don't know what legal remedy someone has in a case like that. And, and in fact, I don't even know what legal remedy Huffington Post has to try to gain that knowledge. I mean, it was like First Amendment, I guess, but there must be all kinds of restrictions in uh, the way that information is made available to reporters, not to mention average folks. Could you just tell us, I mean, not that case or any others you know that deal with what's happening around immigrant detention uh, and the rights for immigrants or foreign nationals who are stuck in the U.S.? I mean, this is a whole area of law that I think for many of us is really complicated. It, even for those of us who work in this area, it is super complicated, especially immigration, because there's so much deference given to the executive branch. Um, so uh, the rates of coronavirus that we've seen in immigrant detention facilities keep rising. They're pretty terrifying. Um, some immigrant detainees have been released in individual circumstances because of um, particular threats to their, their health, um, particular situations individualized to them. But by and large, um, the Trump administration is continuing its hardline approach to immigration that it's taken since 2016 through the coronavirus. 
My involvement on this issue deals with the deportation of individuals who are testing positive for coronavirus when they land in the receiving country. And we're actually up to 11 countries that we know of so far. Uh, they include Haiti, Guatemala, Mexico, Colombia, Romania, India, and many others. Um, ICE is not routinely testing detainees in immigration um, detention, much less testing them routinely before they're put on a plane to go to another country. And um, there was testimony that was given a few months ago um, by representatives from DHS who said they are testing a small minority of people um, those who show up um, with symptoms will be tested, but it just so happens that the test they're using is a rapid response test that the FDA has cautioned against using because of its tendency to return false positives. So there are folks who are getting on planes um, who uh, you know, may have received a test uh, or may not, but if they receive a test, it's positive, and then they show up in the receiving country and they are uh, they're testing positive. It's It's problematic in a number of countries that I've listed for obvious reasons because they don't have a strong infrastructure, healthcare infrastructure to control the virus to begin with, much less take deportees who pose a risk to um, mm -hmm. people in the process or in the community. It's particularly troubling to me in the case of Haiti because that's the country I'm used to dealing with because following the 2010 earthquake in Haiti that, you know, depending on whose figures you look, you look at, killed you know, hundreds of thousands of people and displaced millions. Um, Haiti grappled with a cholera epidemic that was actually imported by UN peacekeepers. Um, the UN failed to test individuals who were coming into Haiti as part of the peacekeeping mission, even though there were outbreaks of cholera in their home country. They also let the um, UN facility deteriorate. So there were um, there were horrible conditions that let cholera spread pretty easily to a country that didn't have a strong infrastructure to begin with. And, and that little infrastructure they had was destroyed in the 2010 earthquake. So Haiti is familiar with dealing with diseases that are sent to them. Um, they did that in, in 2010. And now we're trying to figure out how much of a problem this is now with coronavirus. From an advocacy standpoint, you know, the laws are probably against us, but we, we're smart, we're creative, we like to work around them. But, you know, the truth is we have an administration that we can't appeal to in, in the executive that we have now. Um, as far as Congress goes, there are several bills that attempt to um, limit deportations until the coronavirus emergency is over. Those bills are favored in the House. There's a roadblock in the Senate. And whether or not we can bring a judicial action is um, a little tricky. We're strategizing on that. So what we're trying to do now is focus on soft targets, frankly, um, the private corporations and individuals who are involved in this process, uh, looking at who the private air charter companies are that contract with ICE and to see if there are any entry points there um, to you know, convince them to sever their contracts with ICE, ideally, or to find out who their other clients are and whether or not those clients have um, you know, can exert some influence and, and tell these companies, you know, if you're if you're participating in deportations, then you're not going to get our business. So, so we're frankly looking at that as sort of a fourth leg of a multi-tiered advocacy strategy. We're almost up on time. I'd like to get, uh, don't mind, I recognize it is Friday afternoon, but maybe a couple quick uh, uh, questions or and one quick question in for each of you. Um, Lindsay, uh, maybe to hear from you cases that you 
that you're watching coming down the line? And I know, you know, the CDC, which you kept close eye on, has given um, instructions. You correct me on the, the, I don't know if it's guidelines or instructions. I've had to try to learn CDC vocabulary here. I'm not doing a very good job, but um, basically saying evictions will lead to an increase in coronavirus cases, a pretty aggressive thing for the CDC. Not what I was expecting necessarily in this context. So maybe that's one area we should be looking for cases, but um, can you say, you know, what's on your to-do list when you're watching these cases? What's coming up? I'm, I'm watching that CDC eviction order and the litigation that it's already generated very closely. Uh, and it's not guidance. It's an order uh, uh, okay. which uh, comes with criminal penalties and, and other enforcement mechanisms. Uh, and also, uh, uh, it's unclear how it should be applied at the state court level during eviction proceedings. So. Um, that order is really important to watch in the courts. It's already been challenged in multiple lawsuits. And here's why it's important. Uh, it really pushes the boundaries of the federal government's role in community mitigation. And I just want to be clear, uh, eviction freezes, more importantly, rent relief, which the CDC order does not provide, uh, are a critical support. Um, you know, we've talked a lot about litigation over restrictions, uh, but, you know, transitioning to things like uh, depopulation of uh, of congregate facilities, you know, detention facilities, and then thinking even more broadly about supports in the community for things like housing security, food security, um, uh, income, income support as well to ensure that people can benefit from following public health guidance and recommendations about staying home and minimizing their contacts. In this case, though, uh, the CDC is relying on uh, an older, broader statutory grant of authority for the CDC director to take actions he deems necessary to stop the spread of disease from state to state or across territorial lines within the U.S. And that authority, they really have not used any in anything remotely like this this way in the past. What's interesting and important to watch is that that is the same authority that an administration, either the Trump administration or a future Biden administration, would potentially use to issue something like a nationwide mask mandate, something that lots of advocates have called mm -hmm. for. Uh, it's an open question about whether the courts would uphold such a requirement, um, but uh, uh, we could get an answer to that question in the context of this eviction freeze order. It also has implications for federal regulations more broadly, and I think that's an, a good note to end this discussion on. The courts are answering questions for which we did not have answers prior to the coronavirus pandemic, and the courts have an important role to play in that regard in interpreting the authority of the executive branch and interpreting how individual rights apply to these kinds of uh, uh, uses of, of executive authority that, that we haven't seen in, in, in many, many decades, even, even over a century. Um, going forward, though, their decisions could have implications or other types of regulation in routine times. So some of these decisions could also have implications for things like financial regulation, environmental mm -hmm. regulation, um, uh, other more routine kinds of public health intervention. So uh, anytime you get this kind of big uh, uh, a wave of judicial opinions interpreting provisions of the, of the law, provisions of the constitution that, that they don't often have opportunities to interpret, there's potential for long-term uh, impacts on our legal landscape uh, that could have implications for health and, health and safety uh, far beyond the pandemic. Just want to underline two things you said, make sure I understood the first one right. The 
the success of this order to stand up in the courts may become the basis upon which a Biden administration, CDC, could make orders going into 2021. You mentioned like a mask mandate, things the Trump administration has not been willing to do. Is, it, is that correct? Yeah, that's correct. So depending on how these cases play out in the courts, it either have a chilling effect on a, on a future administration's uh, efforts in, to, to take on a greater federal role in the community response, um, or it could right. uh, provide support for, for a greater federal role. Um, or it could firmly bind the, the the administration going forward. You know, it could be that the courts pretty uniformly declare that there's not authority here. Like with the other matters we've discussed tonight, I expect a mixed reception in the courts. I expect, uh, a, a, you know, multiple decisions that could go in different directions. Um, so not full certainty, but it could have a chilling effect on the, on the administration or an emboldening effect uh, either way. The second thing you said that have uh, disaster scholars listening to this uh, broadcast, their head is tingling, is that uh, court decisions made in the midst of a disaster will have un un potentially unanticipated implications in normal times. And this is one of the things in disaster studies we're always trying to understand um, the longer term implications of disasters, that they make the politics and they make the context, in this case, of court decisions that could go on into so-called normal normal times. And that's a really important uh, takeaway from that. Kathy, the last word with, to you, we're kind of up on time, but it's the same question, like what are you tracking for the rest of the year, let's say? Let me just be optimistic and say for the rest of the year. I, I keep <laughs> talking about 2024, 2021, I'm making people nervous. So let's just say for the rest of 2020. So I'm looking at whether or not that how this has all played out internationally will have an influence on the WHO's um, response to potential health threats, including when the WHO declares a public health emergency of international concern, as well as the reporting requirements for states to notify WHO authorities when there's a potential problem. There is a rubric in place that governs these kinds of communications and responses, but essentially they're toothless. There's not a strong enforcement mechanism and the WHO is you know, a voluntary organization to the extent that countries sign on to um, the, the treaty that's in place. And so again, it's a circumstance where we need buy-in from countries in order to make the system work. And one of the things that's being debated at that level is whether or not in addition to authorizing the WHO to declare an international public health emergency um, versus decline to declare it, whether or not there's some middle ground, um, whether or not there's a way to encourage states to uh, be proactive and more assertive um, and forthright in reporting problems that they're identifying in their home countries without necessarily inducing panic. So that's something that's been debated for a little bit of a while now at the international level, and it's really coming to the forefront post-coronavirus. Well, I wanna thank you both for um, the time that you took today and explaining these really complicated legal issues in ways that uh, I could understand uh, and really getting down into the deeper, you know, sort of constitution constitutional issues that are behind them. I want to remind everybody that you've been listening to COVID calls and you could catch COVID calls every weekday, Monday through Friday at 5 p.m. Eastern time. Kathy Bergen and Lindsay Wiley, thank you both so much. Thank you. Okay, stay healthy, everybody. We will see you on Monday, 5 o'clock.